Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. If you've ever been involved in a collaborative project, if you've ever co-created work with another artist, then this conversation with Wendy Spitzer is gold. So get your notepad and prepare to take notes on risk, trust, and vulnerability in creative collaboration and let it transform the way you make work. Wendy breaks it down, talks about best practices, gives examples of collaborating with other artists, and then we bring the episode to a close by discussing two of her local projects that involve co-creation between artist and audience participants. I'm so grateful for this conversation with Wendy. And I can't wait to hear what you think of it, too. Wendy Spitzer is an interdisciplinary musician and artist with a diverse output spanning music composition and performance, visual and community art making, writing, research, and modes of participatory inquiry. Her projects have been funded by Raleigh Arts, Downtown Durham, Inc., the Durham Arts Council, the Orange County Arts Commission, the Crosshatch Center for Art and Amp, Ecology, and the Stroud Roses Foundation. Under the moniker Felix Obelix, she has released two albums of original compositions. Other experiences have included a time capsule project, the organization of a genre-bending music festival, original scores composed and performed live to silent films, studio session work, a choir commission, theater and soundtrack scoring, as well as solo and group visual arts shows. She has a Bachelor's of Music and Performance from UNC Chapel Hill and a Master of Music in Creative Practice from Goldsmiths College, University of London. Her Master of Music degree culminated in a final thesis that we spend the first half of this episode discussing. Enjoy. Hi, Wendy. Hey, Tamara. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm really excited about the conversation that we're going to have. And you have provided a wonderful gift for me, and that is an umbrella for this conversation to kind of shelter under, nestle under, and that is your graduate research on creative practice, more specifically your exploration of, quote, how the social dynamic and issues of risk, trust, and vulnerability play out when people collaborate on creative projects, end quote. So let's start by talking about this more broadly, and then dig into your framework and best practices for artists. I love some best practices. These are artists who are working collaboratively. Now, the title of your dissertation is Trust Them With Your Weird and Strange Noises, an Arts-Based Research Perspective on Vulnerability and the Social Dynamic in Creative Collaboration. Why did you make creative practice and collaboration your focus? So I think as an artist, I'm really interested in things that lots of people are experiencing, but maybe not talking about. So these are things that are maybe ticking away in the background, either individually or in society as a whole. And for me, I've collaborated a lot in different projects as a musician, and I've always been collaborating with people. And there is so much to the interpersonal dynamic of creative collaboration and almost nobody is talking about it. Mm. So it's one of those things that we're all experiencing, but nobody is really talking about. And when I started researching um, these topics of vulnerability and trust and things like that, 
what I noticed was that there was a lot of research done sort of in organizational studies, management studies, education, but arts practitioners were not themselves talking about it, um, mostly because they're making work. They're just artists, they're practitioners. And then researchers, there there is some research done on the topic, but those researchers are not themselves practitioners. So creative practice, and especially arts-based research, which was the, the uh, methodology of this project, is basically... It's it's a wing of qualitative inquiry, mm. which is a wing of social science, which I stumbled completely into. I did not know it going into it that there was even such a thing, except that in retrospect, I'd kind of been doing arts-based research a couple years prior to this without knowing that there was this thing called arts-based research. And basically, in ABR or arts-based research, you look at a topic holistically. So you're researching, you're reading, maybe talking to other people, but then you're also doing the art practice. Mm. So it's the combination of the theory and then the practice and putting those two things together to generate new knowledge about that topic. Um, so that was sort of the method that I went through in that project. All right. You mentioned that people aren't talking about this. And one of the reasons is because we're too busy doing the work to have the conversation. But do you think there are other reasons that this is not discussed more openly within the arts community? So I think... It's not discussed in the arts community, but it's also not discussed in regular life either. Right. <laughs> because I think vulnerability and trust, trust in particular, it's like a background psychological state. Mm -hmm. It is not something we usually choose to do to trust. Like it just kind of happens naturally over time. It happens in the background and we don't even verbalize trust very often. So arts practitioners aren't talking about it necessarily. It's happening but also in our day-to-day -day lives, it's also happening and we're not talking about it. It's just, for me, when I was researching, you know, vulnerability and trust and these kinds of things, certain buzzwords kept coming up. So risk, reward, you know, opening up and being open. And also the, when it goes badly, like negative reinforcement or positive things. These are things that are happening interpersonally, but then they also, those are things like seeding control in a creative collaboration. Mm. Control issues in, in collaboration happen all the time, and we don't talk about them. So for me, it was interesting um, to explore something that is happening, but that people aren't talking about. I can only imagine that people aren't talking about it because it's kind of uncomfortable to talk about. And I think especially creative people who are working on a project, it's almost like a sign of professionalism to not bring your emotional self into it like you're above those kinds of mm -hmm. things right except that everybody wants an emotional performance or they want an emotional uh, um, output in some way and yet it's kind of like those topics are mean that somehow you're you're not professional or you're not bringing your professional self to the to the sphere of mm -hmm. creation and so perhaps that's that's a reason we're not talking about it there's also never time there's not time to talk about it um, and, that, and that's one of the things that maybe I'll touch on in the best practices later on. So you you did the research and then you had the practice of mm -hmm. making art collaboratively. And through all of this, you developed a framework. Is that right? Yes. So and this is a I should mention that this is a framework of my ideas and a bunch of other people's ideas. I <laughs> uh, don't want to take complete credit for it, but I wanted to come out of it with something I could look at and talk about that would make sense to arts practitioners about how 
these issues might be happening in creative collaboration. Could you take us through that? Sure. So I think the first thing to talk about is what vulnerability is and what trust is, just interpersonally, what these words mean. So in the basic emotional exchange of vulnerability, you're choosing to open up to another person, you're risking potential psychological harm, and you're sort of ceding control to the other person uh, by opening up to that person in some way. And if that risk is rewarded by the other person and they give you positive reinforcement, that's basically the basis of human connection. And it's only that that we get human connection. It's only by showing yourself and being validated in return. And vulnerability is it's the psychological precondition of trust. So to trust someone is to accept vulnerability and accept the psychological risk that you're taking. One of the things about trust is that it's dynamic, so it can change. Mm. And there's a scholar named Russo and his colleagues, he called them different bandwidths of trust. So on the low bandwidth of trust, we have calculus-based trust, which is where you calculate how much you can trust the other person. You're yeah. monitoring back and forth. So you're based on evidence, essentially. And I think a lot of collaborations actually just happen. A lot of relationships happen in calculus-based trust. Yeah. But if there are repeated instances of this going well, then that trust can deepen into something called relational trust or effective trust. And that's where it's repeated care and concern for the other person that's at the root of the trust. It's not evidence that you're continually taking in and managing. Mm -hmm. That's kind of when trust goes into the background and it's existing in the background psychological state. It can deepen even further into something called identity-based trust. And this is where you trust the person so much, your identities can kind of meld with the other person and that's where you're no longer talking about me and you, but we are, are our project or the performance. You, you get rid of your own identity in lieu of this other identity that you're creating with the other person. So these are different bandwidths of trust. And crucially, trust, you can move between the bandwidths. So once you're at one, you can't take it for granted that you're going to stay there forever. Right, okay. It can move up and down. So that's basically how it works. Now, in the framework of how this is working collaboration, one person can take a risk. They can choose this moment of vulnerability. That could be an interpersonal risk or it could be a creative risk as well. So if that goes well and the person rewards you for the risk you just took creatively or interpersonally, then you are gonna find yourself in something I'm calling and other people are calling the safe zone of collaboration. So this is where you feel safe mm. to do things and it's, in the safe zone that the best parts of collaboration are kind of primed to take place. And some of those things are, you feel free to experiment. So you feel free to take risks because the other person is kind of giving you feedback, positive or negative, but you feel like you're not being judged negatively for just trying something. There's greater creativity. Um, you have the chance to experience emergence and group flow, which are things I'll, I'll talk about in a second proximal development is possible and that's basically just this idea that you're learning in relationship to another person so that person's acting as your mirror and then they're giving you feedback and you're both learning mm -hmm. there's um, a scholar named Viris John Steiner who has a great term for this called emotional scaffolding which is such a nice term because you're building the house together right. it's very scary but you have this other person kind of propping you up and if it's working really well then you're propping each other up and you're going to take bigger and bigger risks. And it, it kind of pays dividends down the road when you're making the work because it shows in the work. And then 
the important part in this safe zone is that that's where you have trust, the trust continuum. So very crucially, trust is dynamic. It can change based on, you know, positive things you're injecting into the system or negative things. So positive things could be rewards for risk-taking. You're caring for the person. You're expressing hope for the project and you're forgiving mistakes. That can deepen things if you if you inject these positive things into the system. But I think anybody who's ever collaborated can know that negative things can also be injected into the system and they can have really negative impacts on the collaboration and the relationship. And right. some of those can be like punishment for risk-taking, attempts to control where one person tries to control more than the other person, uh, shaming the other person for digging risks, indifference, which I think is an interesting one meaning maybe one person is more invested in the, in the project than the other person. So you might have like a, what, what if we tried this risky thing? And the other person is like, yeah, sure, whatever. And that can almost feel worse because yes. <laughs> it's like you're not even worth a, a positive or negative reaction or just insincerity lying. So sometimes we're too polite. Mm. And, and so we say, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. But insincerity and lying, like nobody wants to be lied to. And it, that also negatively impacts the relationship and the creative work that you're mm -hmm. doing. And if you have too much of this negative stuff, you might find yourself outside the safe zone, pushed completely out of it. And if you've ever had a collaboration fall apart, I think you know kind of what this feels like. Emails stop getting returned right. or, you know, deadlines are missed or they're just conflict driven rehearsals. All sorts of things can happen. So I think what's important about this framework is just to understand that you can you can be in that collaboration. It can be going well, but it has to continue going well. You have to keep has maintenance. It needs. has ma it has yeah. maintenance needs exactly, and that's basically sort of the bird's eye view of how this might be working. I love the idea that we need to constantly be monitoring this because it also occurs to me, and I'm sure it has occurred to you, that people make assumptions about where everyone is on this spectrum and people enter with different expectations. You know, I might automatically assume that I trust everyone. Everyone trusts me. I feel great about taking risks. I'm totally cool, you know, and then somebody else coming into that same kind of collaboration might be making a different set of assumptions even from the beginning. And so that we really, you really need to sync up with the other person over the course of that entire relationship. Is that what you have experienced? Yes, and you actually just stretched on two of my best practices. I'm oh. gonna jump straight into those. Okay, great. Um, which is to nourish trust at the beginning, at the inception of the collaboration, to set out some of those expectations. Because I think we're a lot of us are guilty of this because we're under tight deadlines, especially in the performing arts. I, I feel this all the time where we have, like, have three rehearsals right. and you just have to like, oh, hi, I'm so-and-so. Hi, great. And then boom, you're, you're in it. Um, and you don't have time for chit-chat. You feel like the chit-chat is a waste of time, especially if maybe you're paying for the rehearsal space or something. Right. <laughs> um, but you, you really should get to know the person as a person first and as a creative person like you, you need that at the beginning and to not gloss over that because, as you said, like different people come to the space with a different set of expectations or it's worth spending time at the outset of a collaboration to set those things in motion, to, to build up 
each other and to build up that safe space, mm. um, it does affect the process and product of creation down the line. So it's worth it. The other best practice that you t- just touched on was to not take it for granted and to verbalize it. And this can be as simple as you're in a rehearsal and somebody has an idea. It's, it might sound a little wacky or something. They're like, can we, can we just try this blah, blah, blah thing? And the answer should be yes. Like, yeah, let's try it. I trust you. Right. And actually just verbalizing, I trust you. It's like a phrase that nobody says. That's magic, though. It's magic. It is Mm -hmm. because you're instantly beefing up the relationship and you're acknowledging that the relationship exists and that it's important. And it's only going to feel weird the first three times you say it. (laughs) And then it's not weird anymore. It's just the thing you say. (laughs) And, you know, taking the the idea of trust being in the background and putting it to the foreground, it really t- it tells explicitly the other person that you're collaborating with or people that you're collaborating with that you respect them as a person as well as a creator. Mm. And I think this is kind of the, the magic part of collaboration, which is how vulnerability and trust work on an interpersonal level is one thing. And then when you're co-creating as well, it's like a double risk, double reward because you're opening yourself up as a person and as your artistic person. And I think for a lot of people, like their art is their self-expression. It's when they they are most themselves. Mm-hmm. And so if that, if you're opening yourself up to the, that other collaborator and they're validating your ideas and your person, it's like the double whammy, double reward for the risk taking. Right. And I think that that's why close collaborations are really powerful and why I personally really like collaborating with other people. It sounds like you're talking about a couple of different touch points here. You're talking about getting to know the other artist as a person and building that kind of a relationship. And you're talking about having this is not the correct correct language, but mm-hmm. standards like of practice in the room for how You're going to kind of implement the safe space. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about circling back to and touching on those in conversation. So it's not enough to just have something on the wall that says like, in this room, we trust each other. And, you know, not just a signage, but actually verbalizing those ideas consistently. Yeah. And I think that you can't just put it on the poster on the wall. Because it's not something that you can enforce on another person. Mm. Both people have to be on board and hopefully they're taking their, their cues from you. And you guys are, you're building each other up in the, mm. in the best collaborations. And ideally you've chosen the collaborator and you know their work already. And you maybe sort of know them as a person already. That's usually how it happens. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we're just thrown into it as well. And in those cases, that kind of verbalization I think is really important. Mm-hmm. But not not coming to it and presenting it as now we are going to say we trust each other. (laughs) Everyone agree. Everyone agree because (laughs) then you're just controlling the situation, which is the exact opposite of being vulnerable and trusting someone is, you you know, if you're putting the control, if you're inserting your own control into that situation, well, you've just destroyed the thing that you're trying to create. Um, So in its best form, it's happening naturally. Okay. And if you've chosen your collaborators wisely or it's just developing naturally, it's worth paying attention to because it is probably going well because these particular things are going well. The artwork is going well. 
And then the interpersonal relationship is also going well. You've mentioned that having a, a trusting relationship benefits the art down the line. Could you talk a little bit about how that happens or why? Sure. I'm going to cycle back to two items that I mentioned earlier, which are emergence and flow. So these are two ideas that are basically only possible to create through collaboration. You, you can't do it by yourself. Um, and I'll try to give examples too. So emergence is this, it's just this very old idea that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, that you're creating this thing with another person and there are properties of both, but it doesn't really belong to either person. You're creating a third thing. Right. Um, and I'm currently still collaborating with one of my colleagues from grad school named Genevieve Dawson. We're writing song, we're doing collaborative songwriting together as Private Cathedral is the name of that. And she is a fantastic singer and trained in jazz and, and a good pianist as well. And she writes quarterly. And then I am mostly an instrumentalist. I write linearly as a bass player. And together we are writing the lyrics and editing each other's lyrics. Um, and this is not something that's done particularly often. I've never mm. done it before. Um, mostly because people are very protective of their lyrics are very personal. Um, so it's a very vulnerable thing to have another person Xing out your lyrics yeah, in particular. Yeah. But we have performed a couple times now. We're probably going to record later this year. And it's music that doesn't sound like either of us. So you can maybe tease out a couple of threads and be like, yeah, that's that's probably Wendy. That's probably Genevieve. But most of the songs in their entirety sound like neither of us. And I think that is exactly what Emergence is. It's creating the third thing that is not possible, except when those two people get together and, you know, create this other thing. Yes. So that's emergence. The other one is group flow and flow in general. And flow is sort of, I mean, people talk about being in flow. It was actually a, a term coined by a Hungarian scholar named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And it's an, it's an altered psychological state when you're so engrossed in a task and there are different elements to it. And I'm going to try to remember them right now. <laughs> um, there's sort of extreme concentration and you're so engrossed in the task that you have an altered perception of time. Yes. That's kind of the key one. You really know you're in flow when you sort of look up and the clock says four hours have passed and you have no idea how they passed. Another element of it is you feel like you know exactly the next thing to do. So you're not kind of scrambling around. It just seems like one thing is happening after the other. Sometimes artists talk about being like a conduit for mm -hmm. a greater force or whatever. This is probably the element of flow that most closely resembles that where you just something is just happening right you wonder where it's happening where it's coming from also self-consciousness and worry disappear you suddenly feel like you can just be free to do whatever and you're not thinking about it you're in the moment this is what's affecting the time alteration because you're not worried about the final product necessarily you're just enjoying the task at hand and it's a pretty rare thing, I think, actually. For me, it is anyway. Maybe some people are getting into flow as creators every day. <laughs> All the time. All the time. <laughs> I'm not. Um, I wish I were. But for me, it's a very rare thing. And so when you can experience that state with another person who's going along with you, it's can be. It's, I think that's even rarer. And 
it's also only possible to go into group flow if you're with other people right or another person and as an example of that that happened very recently i was in london with another collaborator barnabas poffley and yes that is his real name it's a good name <laughs> it's a great name <laughs> and we are writing music together under the name penny miles it's music for syncing and podcasts and online videos and things like that and we'd recorded last summer and we really needed to finish these recordings and so we had four intense days and by the end of it it was like wow are we really going to finish this by the time I need to come home and so I sort of offhandedly suggested that we just stay up all night the night before I head back and he was game for it which was a bit of a surprise but we wound up being in a studio environment, which had no windows. And so it's kind of like nowhere Like to land. Vegas, right? You have no idea how time is passing <laughs> right. because you have no windows to, to show outside world, passage of time, things like that. No cues in the outside world. And we just went through and we mixed seven tracks from 6 p.m. to 7 a.m. the next morning. Wow. And, you know, I think it maybe at around 1 a.m. We, like we looked at the clock again at 5 a.m., like when we've got a couple more hours left. But we spent 13 hours in the room, and it did not feel like 13 hours. Like, I don't know where those hours went. And you produced. And we produced. We finished it. Yeah, and, and you kind of leave the studio and blink a couple times because it's morning, and you feel strange, but also, like, strangely proud, but also exhausted. Right. That's kind of the, that's the aftermath of, like, a, a, gr a group flow situation. <laughs> right. It's like, wow, I am extremely tired. A flow hangover, but it was awesome. It was amazing. <laughs> and and yeah, so that one happened pretty recently as well. And it doesn't happen that often. But it is, I think, a really special thing when it does. Because I think if you don't experience flow generally, it's hard to explain what that feels like to another person. I think artistic people generally find themselves in that state more often. Yeah, yeah. Um, explaining it to other people is quite difficult. I think that's why it feels extra special when you have a group flow situation because you've experienced this rare, strange phenomenon in real time together with another person. Right. And once you do that, either as an individual, but, but especially as you're mentioning in a group situation, once you feel that, it's – I just – I'm chasing that all the time. Yeah, it's intoxicating. It, it absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's like you don't understand how wonderful this is. And then – I think that's where grief comes in if it goes wrong because you know what a certain kind mm – -hmm. you know what state you could be in as a group and when that goes sideways, it's very painful. And that pain, I think, sticks with us for a while afterwards. Yeah, so that's one of the things about being vulnerable is I think when you're a child, you're vulnerable all the time because you haven't been hurt, mm -hmm. right? And then as you get older, you realize that being open can also – leave you open to being psychologically harmed right and so we get these more and more a protective shell around ourselves and that can be wind up being quite thick and then if you've had some collaborations go really wrong the next time you find yourself in a similar situation your mind might go straight right. to like oh it's going to turn out just like the other thing that went badly or whatever i think it's really important to really hit the reset button if that has happened to you and it's gone badly and now you're finding yourself in a different situation. They're different people. There's no reason that it's going to be a repeat of the bad thing that happened before. And so that's just a hard thing to do. I think also some people are just naturally more open than other people. And to recognize like 
you know, to, to meet people where they are mm -hmm. as well as if you're, especially if you're starting like a new collaboration with a person, understanding like where they might fall on a spectrum of very open to, you know, very self-protective. Right. You mentioned this double sense of identity when we make work as creative. So we have our personal identity and then we have our artistic identity and they're very intertwined. And in fact, as you said, who we are as creative sometimes feels like our most authentic, sort of the kernel of our essence. And so that is, it's really hard to show our, you know, bellies to each other or soft spots to each other, but that's where the payoff is. So when you find yourself in a collaboration where you have somebody who is crossing out your lyrics, what do you say to yourself to make that okay and not internalize it as she's crossing out me, my contributions, my artistic self, you, you know, that sort of thing? Yeah, I think part of that is, well, how did you find that collaborator in the first place? So some people are very open to working with whomever, just in the same way that some people are super open to all sorts of different people. I'm pretty selective with the people that I collaborate with, which is not to say that I'm not open to new collaborations. I'm actually looking for them all the time. But I definitely would find myself in a situation where somebody was crossing out my lyrics because I trusted both them as a person, that they cared about me as a person, and that they also respected my work already. And that I respected their opinion of my work, right. which is kind of crucial. So I would probably not find myself at this stage in my career in a collaboration with a person who I didn't respect personally or whose opinions or maybe even aesthetic taste wasn't aligned with mine. Right. And that's, I think, in the, in the case with Genevieve in Private Cathedral, I think that's a, the reason it works so well is because I have great respect for her lyric writing and she has, and, and even prior to the collaboration, we had mutually expressed respect for each other's lyric writing and lyric writing in particular. Mm -hmm. So I always take very seriously her critiques of my lyrics because I know that she writes excellent lyrics herself. Right. <laughs> um, so there's an alignment already at the aesthetic level. I think in a situation where somebody is Xing out some creative input into a, a thing, you can jump to all sorts of different conclusions. Like you can you can feel hurt by that person, or maybe you can just feel really defensive or think like, well, wh who is that person to say that anyway? They don't know whatever, blah, 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 blah. This again gets back to that best practice of establishing things at the outset with this person. You know, is this a person you want to work with? Is this a person who's respecting you and respecting your work? If that has been front-ended at the beginning, then there's a less le less likelihood that you're going to find yourself in those creative situations where you feel like, here's a person who's just destroying right. my work and destroying who I am as a person. <laughs> this is a miserable... This is a mean person. <laughs> a miserable experience. Right. <laughs> you're less likely to find yourself in that kind of a miserable experience if you've done the work at the beginning. Right. Which is again a reason to do that work at the beginning one of the things that I love about collaborating with other people is not having to carry the load of artistic output on my own and having other people who I trust will make it better because usually it's like this is my best whack at this thing I know it's not perfect can you 
make it better. And then I love that. I love giving over my contribution and saying, hey, will you, you know, run this baton down to the next person yeah. because because I gave it what I had and and it's still not there yet. And I love giving sharing that responsibility for making something, as you said, you know, that's that's better than what we would come up with individually. Yeah. And I think that actually speaks well of you that you're so willing to to cede the control to another person that you respect because some people can, some people can't do that whatsoever mm-hmm. and they you know that it's just a terrifying prospect but that is another thing about collaboration is that you you distribute the load the creative load but also in a lot of projects like the administrative load other other parts of it you can push you can delegate certain things to certain people and you can like push each other along so if you're working just alone and you maybe have a deadline eight months from now or something, you know, you're you're completely responsible for your own motivation to do all of the steps to get you where you need to be. And there's something really powerful about having other people you're beholden to. Oh, yes. Some people just do this naturally better than other people. I've, I've done some solo projects that were gigantic and I did them by myself. And, you know, I don't necessarily have a problem with that always. But... It, for certain kinds of projects, it's way easier to have somebody take on, especially the part of the situation you don't like or the part of the project that you're not particularly good at, mm-hmm. where somebody else, maybe that's where they shine. And suddenly everything gets done in a way that's like mutually beneficial, hopefully, to everybody because you can distribute both the creative load and the administrative load. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe... People outside the arts don't understand how much administration is involved in an art project. Yeah. Like every every big project involves a multitude of tasks that have nothing to do with the creative process whatsoever. And having other people on your team to rely on, it's sort of invaluable in that way. Right. So I want to talk about some other specific projects, but I want to make sure that we covered everything here that you wanted to touch on. So there's just one more best practice, and that is to view insecurity as an opportunity to build trust. So if you're paying really close attention to your collaborator, you might find these moments where he or she or they might say something very offhand about some point of insecurity. Maybe a long time ago, somebody said something about their singing voice, as an example. And that kernel of insecurity is just kind of deep within them. And sometimes that, or I would say often, that is not based in any kind of real reality. It's just this thing that they feel insecure about. And if they trust you enough, they might just sneak into the conversation. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to do that because my singing voice is kind of crappy. And just, just very under the radar. But if you're attuned to your collaborator, you can notice those moments and then build them up in the area in which they feel insecure. So... It might be possible that they are actually insecure in something that they're not quite skilled at yet, but go ahead and build them up anyway, because they're only going to get better with your encouragement. Conversely, they might be insecure in some thing that is really not based in reality whatsoever. And in those things, you can just notice the moment, acknowledge it and say like, no, your singing voice is great. What are you talking about? And then they're, they you know, that little moment of insecurity, it's its really a micro moment of vulnerability. Right. They're being vulnerable, but in it's scary to admit that. And so they've done it very much under the radar. And if you're 
if you're sensitive to it, you can notice those moments and they can build you and you can build them up in the area in which they feel insecure. And then in return, you it might flip and you might also get built up in some area of your own insecurity. And again, this is where a thing that can only happen in collaboration. You can't, you don't have another person to act as your mirror when you're working alone. And so if you have like a little voice in your head saying like, I'll never do this. Well, you know, there's nobody else in a room when you're working alone to counter that little negative voice. But if you're therapists are for (laughs) (laughs) or a good collaborator, or a good collaborator, right? (laughs) So that's that's the last one, which is just to see to notice those moments, those micro moments of vulnerability when people are admitting to some moment of insecurity or some area of insecurity, and acknowledge those and build up the person because it's only going to affect the process of creation and the product positively like it can can only do good things so don't be stingy with praise there's there's no reason to be stingy don't be stingy and don't ignore it yeah and just let it pass even if it feels like it might take a little bit of extra time it's worth it because people will not be giving 100% of themselves if they're walking around with all of these insecurity hurdles to jump over and Jumping over the hurdle takes literally like three seconds. Right. <laughs> it takes it takes no time in rehearsal. People, you have time in rehearsal. To say, your singing voice is great. <laughs> yeah, you're, exactly. It takes three seconds. <laughs> there's just no reason to not do it. I don't, I think there's no reason to not do it. Awesome. This is very inspiring. We've been talking so far about co-creation and collaboration between and among artists I'm curious about your thoughts around co-creation and collaboration with artists and audiences, or perhaps a better word is participants. And I wanted to, in particular, touch on two local projects that you engaged in that I think have an interesting collaborative experience between audience and artist. And the first one was called Portraits in Common, that happened in downtown Durham. Would you like to set set up that project for us? Sure. So this was a project I did last August through November in downtown Durham. It was sponsored by Downtown Durham Inc.'s um, public space project, which was the first time they were doing it. So it was a pilot project that Downtown Durham Inc. was doing. I worked with a collaborator named Douglas Von Cannon, who's a great photographer based in Durham. And we basically set up this experiment essentially where during third friday artwork in august i paired up strangers who were just walking around downtown durham we paired them up and they had about five minutes to find the most unusual thing that they had in common with each other and then once they arrived at that thing they wrote it on a whiteboard and then they held up the whiteboard and doug took a portrait of them a photograph of them And then at the end of it, I made a video of all the portraits and I wrote the musical score underneath the video. That was the output. So it was a community participatory project because without participants, this does not a project make. Right. (laughs) There is no project. (laughs) There is no project unless people participate. In terms of, you know, all the things we've been talking about, there was really risk, vulnerability, trust at multiple levels. So there was the level of the participants trusting me and Doug 
that we were going to ethically and responsibly, you know, handle them and that we were going to, you know, take a good portrait of them in particular in Doug's case. And some of them, you know, they didn't really want to have their photo taken. They felt a little, you know, self-conscious or something, Mm -hmm. but they had to trust that the photograph would look good. And they did because Doug is an amazing photographer. And then they were also um, vulnerable and trusting with each other because, and, and in a, in a kind of amazing way, actually, because nobody knew each other. And there were several surprising things about that project. I was really surprised at how willing people were to open up to each other. I was really surprised by how many people participated. We were not sure. I mean, this is the big risky thing with a participatory community-based project, which is if people don't participate, it's nothing. Right. <laughs> and I was guessing maybe 30. Like if 30 people participated, we had 15 pairs. Eh, that was going to be pretty good. But we had well over 90. So triple the number. We did it for three hours and we just had to cut it off after three hours because we were just exhausted. And right. it could have gone forever. It could have gone on for, for hours beyond that. Yeah. And, um, and it was surprising how long people wanted to talk to each other. So we had artificially created this five minute rule thinking if they had a time limit, they would jump right into it. And instead of just kind of hemming and hawing or whatever, we thought the five minute time limit would would spur them on in some way. Instead, people just wanted to talk. Mm. And after after a few of these, I realized, like, I'm not going to set the timer anymore. They're just going to talk. And what we found a lot of times was that they arrived on the unusual thing in maybe the first three minutes. And then the next seven <laughs> minutes was just talking about whatever they wanted to talk about. Um, and I guess maybe that shouldn't have been that surprising. But to me, it was. And I thought, you know, part of part of the experiment of this project was just thinking we live in a really socially divided society right now and people are not talking to each other and nuance is kind of out the window in right. conversations and that most of our conversations with strangers are happening online they are not happening face to face anymore so the chance you have to talk to somebody you don't know it's like on a message board or on facebook or twitter or something which is a totally different form of communication so people were willing to talk they talked for a long time there were a lot of people and a great diversity of Durham. It was it was nice to have so many portraits of so many different facets of Durham, especially as Durham is changing a lot, mm-hmm. obviously, in, in these years. And so it, it exceeded my expectations for it. And it was quite inspiring, honestly. And in terms of, you know, collaborating, I collaborated with all 90-some people because everybody together made the work. It wouldn't have existed without them. And actually, in this case, it's, it really wouldn't have because we wouldn't have any photographs of any people. We couldn't have made the video. You know, I might have been able to make the musical score, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't really be anything. I think all of those things with risk and people opening up to each other and trusting the process and trusting each other, it all it all came through in that project, even though all of my research was done in dyadic partnerships with like one other collaborator who's also an artist all of those things played out in this project, which was participatory and involved a bunch of people who weren't artists. That was surprising to me. I love the the video that you made and the photographs and the music and all of that. It's just, it was very inspiring to watch. What this says to me is that 
people do want to trust each other. We want to engage with one another. We want to be seen. We want to be recognized and validated. And in addition to that, we want to come together and make things. Like that feels kind of like a basic human need or drive is to come together in a group and witness each other and create something together. And I think this is a little bit of a tangent, Mm -hmm. but I, I think I'm very curious about going there. So I think that is for many people our initial desire, but things get tricky when trust is broken. And it's the conversation that you have with the people that you have invested in relationships with when that trust is broken down the line and you have to repair it. Um, I think that that's really hard. That's when we, when we pull back and we don't want to open up. And so how do you repair? I'm, I'm going to switch focus here. Yep. How do you repair broken trust in a collaborative artistic relationship that you want to save. You don't want to walk away and be like, screw you, I'm never working with you again. This didn't work out. But you actually have invested in one another and you want to fix things. What do you do? That's an excellent question. (laughs) I'm trying to think back to the bazillion collaborations I've had, some of which have gone well and some of which have not. You know, it's having an uncomfortable conversation and everybody hates an uncomfortable conversation. Like you have to... But you have to have it, you have to verbalize it, and you have to set aside time to have it, um, which a lot of people, again, you're just scrambling to do the project and finish on a deadline or some something. And it's recognizing that you may also be at fault in some way, that like it's rarely one person's fault when things go awry. And approaching it, maybe maybe the trick is to, at the outset, say and verbalize that you want to save the relationship, mm-hmm. that that is a priority and that, okay, we're, this is just a hurdle and we're going to get over this one. And then like, let's work on this because, and then that's maybe where I would say, because, and then enumerate the reasons that you want to continue that relationship. You're great at what you do. Remember when we did this thing, blah, 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 because people, like you said, people want that connection. They want to be part of something. Mm-hmm. Now, the other person might not. You know, you're, you are not in control of that part of it. And I think maybe going into it, understanding that convincing someone right. to save a relationship, artistic or otherwise, that's not that's not going to fly. But, you know, they may be in the same position as you are. If somebody has to broach the subject. And I do think that some... Some projects may just fizzle out because people don't want to have an uncomfortable conversation. Right, absolutely. Um, and that's maybe, that happens maybe more often than you might expect. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would verbalize the priority of saving the thing that is going wrong, the relationship itself. You know, we've worked together a long time and this is, this is worth continuing, but we're running into this roadblock. I've probably done a few things, you know, it's having an uncomfortable conversation. Nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to do it, but we have to be brave. It requires an incredible amount of bravery. And that's the thing about, you know, in the literature about vulnerability, a lot is said that, you know, if you're vulnerable, you're kind of weak. You're, you're the opposite of brave, but actually it takes great courage to open up because that's when you're the most 
you're putting yourself at the greatest risk. You know, you're, you're putting your yourself in harm's way, essentially. It takes courage to have that uncomfortable conversation, just like it takes courage to be vulnerable in the first place. Mm-hmm. Bringing your vulnerability to that uncomfortable conversation. Maybe. Yeah. I have not myself done this well in my lifetime. So I should probably not be speaking on it. No, this is wonderful. I'm so glad to have this part of the conversation with you because I think you're right. I think a lot of collaborations fizzle out maybe before they have reached the pinnacle yeah. you know, of what people could make together mm-hmm. because we just can't hang with the uncomfortability. And I totally get that. I am the most conflict avoidant person mm-hmm. you could ever possibly run into. But is it worth it? Is it is it worth it to let that go? Or not, I think is the question that we yeah. that we ask ourselves, you know, and and coming up to somebody and saying, I value what we can make together and I value you as a person so much that we're going to we're going to be uncomfortable together for a little bit yeah. in order to make it better and eek. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for going there with me. Not comfortable, but possibly necessary. Yeah, yeah. So all right, so we're going back now okay. to the other upcoming project that you're working on. And this is rewinding back to what we were talking about related to artist and audience or participants as collaborators. So this project is, has not yet occurred and it is going to be part of the Temporary Performance-Based Public Art Festival in June. In June. All right. And what are you working on for this? Um, so this is being... Produced by Raleigh Arts and the Raleigh Arts Commission, City of Raleigh, Raleigh Arts Commission. And it's happening in Dorothea Dix Park, which is a park in Raleigh. It's actually a gigantic park in Raleigh that has a a quite fraught history. So it had a psychiatric hospital for many years, which closed in the early 2000s. And now it's kind of a hodgepodge of different kinds of buildings, some of which are not used anymore and are kind of dilapidated and other ones are are in use and basically this is a chance to do some different kinds of public art in Raleigh. When we think of public art I think a lot of people think like a mural on a wall or something but this is some some of it's going to be performance art, installation, different kinds of performative acts and mine is a what I'm calling a traveling audio installation. So I'm basically researching elements of Dorothea Dix Park. I'm going to have a Google hotline uh, where people can anonymously record their thoughts on prompts that I'm going to give them. Audio. So they can do audio recordings. Yeah. So they're going to call into the hotline and then I'm going to use those audio recordings in this final piece. And there's probably going to be some narration. There'll definitely be a musical score. So it'll be basically like an audio, an experimental audio piece. And then I am tracing a trajectory, a one mile loop around the park that people will listen to on headphones. And so they're going to experience and take with them through the headphones, the audio piece as they move around the park. So it's site specific in the sense that they will be hopefully going along this route that I've set out for them. And then there will be experimental audio through their headphones, giving a kind of audio guide to the space. But, and this is, I should say, I'm in the very beginning stages of this project. Um, probably by the time that people are listening to this podcast, I will have completed it. Right. Or be very close, <laughs> I hope so. Um, 
my feeling is that I don't want this to just be the kind of didactic audio guide you would have at a museum. Like, this is ah. this is such and such building. It was built in 1954. Like, not that kind of stuff, because that's not kind of what I do. So I'm going to sort of try to weave in these different threads about the park's history, because it was also like a plantation before the Civil War. There were Union troops who were occupying it during one part of the Civil War. There were Native Americans on that land a long time ago. You know, there's a lot of history. And those layers of history are kind of hidden right now in the park. Like you, you walk around and you're not really sure what is what. And this will, this audio installation that is going to be through the headphones will hopefully enlighten the listener a little bit about that history, but in a sort of experimental audio way, um, mixed in with some music and some other stuff to be determined because it's just starting out but that's basically the plan so i'm calling it a traveling audio installation that's june 1st at dorothea dix park i love how you have opened yourself up to be inspired not just from your own mind but by these these outside forces whether they're the audio clips or the sound sort of the environmental sounds of that area the history was that a conscious decision that you made to be inspired by those things? Or did it just sort of naturally happen because that's the way you work? Well, yeah, I think it's a kind of natural thing for me. So I often, I call it modes of participatory inquiry, which is just a really pretentious way of saying I ask people questions and then I do things with the answers. <laughs> um, so I'm not, I'm not a social practice artist. And I think a lot of community-based arts practices, they get shuffled into this idea where a goal of the artwork is to move along some kind of social change. I'm not actually doing that or I'm not particularly interested in doing that. I'm more just like to pick people's brains right. and then create things from the brain pickings, mostly because, you know, I can be in my head and come up with a million things, but it's not quite as interesting to me as asking people interesting questions. And uh, with the Portraits in Common project, that was sort of an example of that because if you watch that video, you'll find that hopefully you will notice that I've grouped the responses in a certain way. Like there was a big chunk of it was like geographical things we had in common. And then there were things that people had in common, not just with each other, but with other pairs. Right, right. Um, that unless you've done like, 90 people's worth of responses you're not going to see those types of things again this is kind of art space research this is qualitative inquiry you're finding out information by asking questions mm -hmm. um and for me the dix park i don't know that much about dix park's history and the more i keep scraping at it the, the more layers are getting uncovered so i think actually for this project is going to be controlling the scope of it is going right. to be a, a big one and to do just to do justice to the entire history I might not be able to use every single layer of the scraping because you don't want to just toss off. Oh yeah. There are a bunch of slaves buried here. Right. Oh right. yeah. And then just not, it becomes meaningless. It becomes if, and yeah. overwhelming. Yeah. And, and it also, it's almost worse to explore something at a really surface level. Like it's not, it just, it also won't make good art. So I'm, right, I'm not going right. to do that um, with it in terms of this project and other projects I've done. I just, I like asking questions. I think that's the thing that runs through all the things that I do is just a curiosity and 
asking people questions. I think people love to answer questions. Oh, yes. It's it's an amazing thing. It's just just asking the question gets people talking and people want to talk about the things that they're interested in and they want to have their opinions known. And so that's going to be part of this project. People come up with things that you never would expect. That's that's my joy in asking people questions. Yeah. Like never in a million years. I could I mean, I do a lot of playwriting, right? So I try to write what I think people would say, but never in a million years would I come up with what this person I met at a party said about X, Y, and Z. Right. Never. And so that is it's just such a wonderful discovery to hear what comes out of people's minds and mouths. And Yeah, and I think you know, for me, I, I'm self-employed in addition to being an artist. So I spend a lot of time by myself yeah. in my own head. <laughs> and it's not it's not good necessarily. Right. And it's not it doesn't spur me on to the best creative self either, as it does with working with other people, mm-hmm. both in this context with, you know, complete strangers, as well as in a collaborative setting. So you may have answered part of this question already uh, by talking about how you you lean into asking questions as a way of making your work, but I'll ask it and see if something else comes up. As people who are listening have discovered, you have an incredibly diverse output. You work on all sorts of interdisciplinary projects. You are a multidisciplinary artist, and I think in many ways you defy categorizing, which I think is really amazingly cool. You have mentioned that occasionally the diversity of your work can make it difficult for you to present a concise narrative. But my question is, you know, on some level, this does make sense to you. What do you think it is that is tying all of these different projects together? What is the narrative? I mean, that's a hard question to answer, but I think it is just a curiosity across disciplines and across ideas. So I just, I follow my nose and I ask more questions and they lead me to different things. And for whatever reason, I am able and I find it very easy to think across disciplines, to make connections across disciplines. It's just kind of how my brain works. I've even had like a lot of different kinds of jobs and I've lived a lot of different places and making those connections across disciplines is is very easy for me. And just like a natural curiosity, I want to know the next thing. And so asking questions and like poking at the thing and examining it from all angles, that's probably the thing that right now is tying all of my work together. I think in the past I have had some thematic things run through, um, like the relationship of time and death to memory, memory and place, um, the elasticity of time. And time is very important to me. I'm a musician primarily. I'm trained in music. And if someone were to really press me, I would say, like, I am a musician first and foremost. And then I work in all these other disciplines in conjunction with sound and music. But lately, I've been broadening out from those themes. And I'm just following the next thing that seems interesting to me. I do recognize that that makes me harder to describe. And unfortunately, a lot of the sort of infrastructure of arts requires a quick pitch right you need the 15 seconds or gosh five seconds to describe what you do and you know i just don't i don't have a five second thing right now except to say that i'm a multidisciplinary artist and musician Mm -hmm. with an interest in 
modes of participatory inquiry. And, you know, that's just very service level and very pretentious. And I don't really (laughs) like saying those words, but I don't know what else to say at this point. And, you know, I'm also very willing to admit that it's going to change in three years as well. Three years, five years, six months from now, new threads are going to come along. And that's maybe another thing that's just kind of what I do, which is I am not limiting myself to one thing. And I jump from wildly different projects, most of the time in things I've never done before. So one thing that I've never done before just leads to a completely different project that I've never done before. And so I feel like I'm starting from scratch a lot. Um, I've never done a traveling audio installation. I'm not even sure quite what it's going to look like. Um, So maybe sort of a a willingness to try new things and maybe fail at them. This may be also a thread that's running through the things that I do. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about before we wrap up? I guess somewhere in here, I feel like I should publicly thank the Durham Arts Council because it just gave me an emerging artist grant. And I got to to upgrade some studio equipment Um, and DDI for funding the Portraits in Common thing and Raleigh Arts for funding the Sticks Project. And that's great because I am always doing projects and sometimes they're funded and a lot of times they're self-funded. And so when I get that kind of funding, I do like to thank everybody for it. I should also mention that I'm always looking for new projects and new collaborators. One of the longer term projects I have is reimagining my great grandfather's operetta, De Gude Freunde, or The Good Friend. He was a composer in the early part of the 20th century in Vienna. And when my uncle died a couple of years ago, we are now emptying out the family home and I found all of his sheet music. Oh, wow. Including the entire scores to this operetta that I guess was premiered in Marburg, Germany in 1912. And so this is a longer term project is to go through all of his scores and potentially like reimagine that operetta as a kind of experimental 21st oh, wow. operetta with some of my own music and my own weird staging and whatever. That's a gigantic project that's going to be very much long term. And I guess a first step would be an enterprising gung-ho German translator would help me with the translating the libretto. So if you're out there listening, <laughs> call in, call in to this number. And, and yeah, just, I am looking up for collaborators all the time. So if you have some project that's of interest, I do like to jump in to things that I've never done before. And I do always have taking away a variety of projects that I want to institute so if anybody wants to work on that or would like to fund any of that, that would be great. Thank you so much for this conversation. I, this is like my passion place. All, all of the things that we talked about tonight, I could talk about forever. So there's so much here that we haven't yet explored, but to be continued. Okay, sounds and great. <laughs> thank you again, Wendy, for all that you do and for, for sharing your wisdom with us. I appreciate it. Thanks. And thank you for the podcast. It's great. Hey, friends. Did you know that I'm working on a new audio drama to be released this summer 2019? It's an adaptation of my stage play, Master Builder. This is a whole new kettle of fish for me, and I'm so excited. We're revealing all sorts of behind-the-scenes goodies via the Artist Soapbox Patreon page, and we'd love for you to join us as we roll toward completion. 
patrons who donate $3 or more per month have access to updates and extras, and even more excitingly, they'll have early access to the completed audio drama before the general public. Come on and join us at patreon.com slash artist soapbox.